This is the Terms of Reference Podcast number 149. You know, when you're in business, you can really orient yourself. You know, you understand vertical you're in, which industry you're in. You understand the landscape, the lexicon's normal. Like, you never get lost in business. In the social arena, I think we just have tolerated a level of complexity and fragmentation for a really long time. And I just think it's a status quo that's unacceptable. This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. There is a beautiful simplicity to the commercial sector. Anyone can create products and services that satisfy a real or perceived need in whatever markets they want. Then, with the right marketing and hopefully added value from the better mousetraps people create, the business can realize a profit. And that, ultimately, is the measure of your success. Unfortunately, finding the same simplicity in the social sector is difficult. While social enterprises, nonprofits, and charities are on the constant lookout for or purposeful invention of products and services that satisfy real, again, or perceived needs, rather than seeing profit as the end game, the social sector seeks to an overall improvement in the human condition. This presents something of a conundrum because we still have so much trouble as a human community agreeing about what improvement means. I know there's a lot to unpack in this seemingly simple distinction. But fortunately, that's exactly why I'm so excited to introduce my guests for the 149th Terms of Reference podcast. Paula Kravitz is a strategic advisor for the Social Progress Imperative, a Washington, D.C.-based enterprise dedicated to redefining how the world measures and achieves social progress. Before SPI, Paula spent a decade at the Skoll Foundation, where she directed and curated the Skoll World Forum on Social Entrepreneurship. Said another way, Paula has been at the forefront of thinking on the social sector for the last 10 years. And if I'm completely honest, as I hope comes out in our conversation, Paula is tapped into what is essentially the reason behind why I started Apreneur in this podcast in the first place. The need for a shakeup of the social sector in order to redefine and align what it is we're all trying to achieve as a collective body dedicated to human flourishing. I found our conversation massively refreshing, and I hope you do too. I spoke with Paula in San Francisco. But before we get started, here's a word from our sponsor. The Terms of Reference podcast is sponsored by International Solutions Group, helping to improve the social impact of governments, UN agencies, NGOs, and companies for more than 10 years. Visit ISG online at www.theisg.com. Hello, Paula. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Paula, you are truly a a world traveler, someone who's been around the world several times. Where do we find you today? Well, I'm actually at home base. I'm here in San Francisco. Nice. And uh, and on March 1st, is San Francisco delightful or do you have a sweater on? It's delightful. And I always have a sweater on here because even (laughs) in the summer, we wear sweaters constantly. So it's it's Uh, always a little chilly, but still... I guess that's San Francisco. Fantastic. Paula, you are a strategic advisor for the Social Progress Imperative. I've been excited about this conversation for quite a while now once we once we got it organized and whatnot. But you also, you know, you were at the Skull World Forum for 10 years. You are a brain trust for the social, uh, the social impact sector. Um, and so I'm really excited about this conversation. The thing that, uh, you know, we were discussing before the show uh, is that, that we wanted to talk about this paradigm shift or the need for this paradigm shift in, in social impact, in, in helping, you know, basically being in the business of helping people, but also really how do we change business so that it's, it's helping people while doing business, right? I mean, I guess that's part of the paradigm shift. 
instead of tackling that huge question right off the bat, why don't we start by you telling us your story of, of maybe a little bit of your background about, at, at Skoll and at SPI, but then you know, how did you arrive at this moment where this is what you're focused on, this is, why, this is the most important thing you do every day? Sure, thank you. Um, well, in another life, I was working in the private sector. So for many, many years, I worked um, in different industries. I was a consultant. I worked on brand and business strategy. And about 12 years ago, I just decided to get um, into the, the meaningful space, um, whatever it is that happens to people that makes them want to take that leap. Um, and so I joined Skoll, which was a hugely fortunate place to start because Skoll is such a unique organization in the world of philanthropy and in the impact space in general. It's a very entrepreneurial organization. I took on the Skull World Forum and really built that program over um, several years. So that put me at the intersection of a lot of different conversations and actors and sectors and um, really in the middle of just some of the most transformative social innovators out there, um, many of whom have received the Skull Award, which is a very prestigious award. Um, and, you know, being at school, just under learning the, the, the space in general, trying to get, get my legs, so to speak. One of the things I realized was when I was in business, it was very easy to orient myself. You know, I knew which industry I was in. I could get the landscape. I could define the space. Um, I understood the goals. Um, it didn't matter where I was operating. Um, I could still speak the same language. And when I got into the social arena, it was just a much just such a different uh, animal. And I think lots of people coming into the space have that experience. So I just assumed I would have to get on top of it and just keep learning and learning. And then uh, about a, two years ago, Sally Osberg wrote a book called Getting Beyond Better, um, How Social Entrepreneurship Works. It's an amazing book that just really breaks down approaches of social entrepreneurs and what distinguishes them from other kinds of actors in the ecosystem. And one of the ways um, she talks about it is that, that they disrupt a status quo. They're not just making things better. They're actually um, adapting their solutions to the complexity of the problem, and they're solving it in a way that shifts the status quo for whatever that group is, whatever that community, whatever that region, um, that it really changes things in a fundamental way and in a permanent way. The more I looked at that, the more I started to think about what's the status quo in the in the arena that we're operating within, in that sort of environment um, around social entrepreneurs. And one of the things was that it was just this moment where I realized, even though we've been supporting the most transformative innovators, many in the world, that they still didn't have access to the financial, technological, and human resource that a commercial entrepreneur had, even though they are equally as important to um, a word that you use that I really like is human flourishing. Mm -hmm. So if a business entrepreneur, social entrepreneur are equal in the value that they're creating, why is it okay that they are kind of, for this is an extreme word, but kind of starving on the front lines, trying to deliver this social value that is creating, you know, transformations in the communities where they work. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what got me into thinking, well, what is that status quo? You know, and Sally would always say, you have to understand that system in which you operate. So you have to understand the dynamics between the actors. Um, so that's what set me, you know, and she, you know, while I was at school, I started to do some of that work, just really looking sort of a bird's eye view at the space that we're all operating in. Because one of the things that we know is that the social 
space is growing faster than any other sector. There's more actors, there's real money, there's more um, institutions coming on board, um, there's more interest, and yet it's still really hard to understand how it operates. Is this a sector? What are the boundaries around it? Why do we tolerate this dysfunction? So it set me on a course of trying to unpack that sort of um, big picture view of the space itself so we could see how best, where to play, how to win, so to speak, how to get to that next level, how to break the status quo that we've been tolerating for many years just around the fragmentation, the inefficiencies. I love it. I mean, what a delicious smorgasbord of things to talk about, right? <laughs> I want to start back at the beginning of what you talked about, and maybe I'm going to challenge you with, with maybe something of a, a difficult question right off the bat, but you said you left the private sector to go into the meaningful space, Right. How much yes. of the distinction of the social sector, the, what I'm, I, I'm, we, we call, I call it the social impact sector, right? I'm not sure if that's a term or not, yep. but, but there it is. So I, I call it the social impact sector. How much of it is this, this dichotomy that we have in our brains that, you know, when I'm going and I'm working for Texaco, is that even a company now? Or I'm working for Ford or I'm working for whomever, uh, you know, this isn't meaningful work. This isn't, you know, we're not, I'm not doing something meaningful. I'm not being, I'm not being fulfilled. And in order to do that, I have to move into this other space. Have you thought about that and how that might, how just that, that very dichotomy? Yeah, that's an intriguing question. And I, I think for, um, you know, there's so much meaningful. I mean, the private sector obviously turns massive wheels of innovation and human flourishing so much. In fact, that that's why it's the dominant paradigm. That's why we measure GDP, because it really does kind of run the world. Um, but we know that a lot falls through the cracks. And we also know that a lot of the money, I mean, you know, I'm just going to get specific here. You know, I was working in industries where we'd spend a million dollars on a sales meeting enormous amounts of money being spent and then just watching other things that seem so important kind of dying on the vine or scrapping for pennies that pursuit of the profit you know the profit motive ultimately it does create massive innovation change right i'm just thinking how much have we changed how much has the universe changed because of uber now or because of airbnb or or even facebook right you talk about these profit making machines but at what point and maybe I'm leading the witness here in a way, but at what point does that that pursuit of profit then move from we're doing something that's changing the status quo to we're willing to suck the forest dry or suck the beast dry, right, to, to get that next level, that marginal profit without considering, hmm, what, where's the sustainability in this and does this make sense and how is this affecting that, that, that greater community? And again, we're going to use that term again, but how does this actually lead us to better human life? How does this better lead us to better human flourishing? Well, in some ways, you know, business is, and now I should say, I am firmly committed and rooted in the social arena. So now when I look, I'm looking from that vantage point, sort of back to business. Yeah, you're a convert. Um, and one of the, mm -hmm. I'm a convert, 100%. <laughs> Um, but, you know, one of the, one of, you know, because we work with a lot of social entrepreneurs who are partnering with business and business in many ways, still a very nascent way. I mean, we have to acknowledge that it's still very nascent. All of us in the social space talk about getting corporates on board, getting corporates involved. And it's really still just a handful of the Unilevers, those names that just come up over and over. Part of what's driving that is just the need. I mean, you look at social entrepreneurs working on oceans and sustainable fisheries. You know, Walmart 
needs them now because how else are they going to get 20 million pounds of fish per year, you know, to, to serve their customers. And so I think we, you know, this is another reason why it's such a disruptive time for the space because now business has to, is starting to have to come to the table. The other side of that is activities within business, they're, they're creating because of impacts on the environment, because of use of natural resources, they're creating problems faster than we can solve them. And so there's these problems that get created. And then there's a bunch of actors down in the social, the sort of informal marketplace of the social arena who are picking up the pieces. So that's a kind of an interesting dynamic, which is business is causing problems in many ways. And we're trying to pick up the pieces down here with not enough resources and a fragmented kind of a disordered marketplace. I, I love that you that's put tough. on the table uh, a few seconds ago, you know, Walmart has to invest in sustainable fisheries. Otherwise, their business model fails, right? At the end of the day, Uber is going to have to invest in sustainable cars, right? In, in electric cars, their, or their business model will fail eventually, right? These kinds of things. One of the things in your introduction as well, you said, one of the biggest problems is it's difficult to orient yourself in the social impact sector, right? If, if I were to pluck somebody out of whatever global you know, Fortune 100 company today who's, you know, let's just call them an EVP, and I say, okay, and you're now running this, this quote-unquote social company, they would find themselves in a tailspin pretty quickly. The jargon is different yeah. than the name. You know, and something, again, that we were talking about before we started recording the show is that this whole sector has evolved and it's, it's you know, it's, it's in constant evolution like everything else. But tell me about what it's like. What, what did you have to do to orient yourself? But then I know that there's, there's some stuff you shared with me about how has the social sector evolved itself to get to where we're at now in the 21st century, essentially? And, and where do you think we're at today and, and sort of what the next page is? I think if I, you know, part of when, you know, Sally Osberg kind of challenged us, look at the space itself, then we, all of a sudden we're in that quandary of like, well, what space? How do we put a boundary around it? Is it the social space? Is it civil society? Is it the impact? You know, people draw different boundaries. Is it global? Is it broken down by countries? You know, so we sort of were challenged by that. But we did you know, we had to start somewhere. So we thought, okay, let's just walk through time and space. Let's just put ourselves way out in the universe. And when we think about walking through time, um, it breaks down, um, not perfectly, but you kind of look at around, you know, where, where when we used to tend to the needs of people, it was really about charity, about families, about churches, about communities. Then we moved into this kind of world of um, philanthropy, you know, in the 1890s, the whole concept of philanthropy came about, you know, this charity, this idea of giving back. Keep in mind that as we walk through time, these things, nothing goes away. It's a pile on. So it's kind of a striation of these things layering upon each well, sure. other. I mean, how many times um, do you hear about the Carnegie Foundation, you know, if you're listening to NPR or whatever? I mean, they're, they're still here. They're still giving so, away money, you know, and, and they really haven't evolved all that much. Apologies to Carnegie. Exactly. They're not listening probably, but who knows. So then get into the, you know, kind of 1930s and these, you know, how are we tending to more people's needs? And then we get into the big systems of welfare in Europe and the US. This is when the depression happened. And then you get into the development era, you know, in the 30s, where with all the big institutions, the Marshall Plan and all these big kind of development institutions, Paul Collier calls that the development biz. I kind of like his distinction. Sometimes he calls it development buzz, which is kind of the do good, poppy, feel good stuff versus the big development 
development infrastructure, which is still there and it's huge. And then we get into the you know big social movements and the rise of civil society. Paul Hawken wrote a book called Blessed Unrest, and he kind of documents this rise of just massive amounts of nonprofits and philanthropies and social enterprises. It's just a million points of light, you know, just a mass proliferation of institutions that are being born to handle the needs of humanity, um, the things that are falling through the cracks of our markets. And now we're here in the 21st century, and so we still have welfare, we still have development, we still have a million nonprofits now running around, and now we have big philanthropists. Michael Green and Matthew Bishop wrote a book called Philanthropic Capitalism, really documenting just this rise of these massive billionaire kind of entrepreneurs who are now jumping into the social arena. And then there's the rise of social innovation, which in many ways came up out of the sort of failings of the development era. It's like, okay, this is something else. This is social entrepreneurship, social innovation, social enterprise, social finance, social capital markets. You know, there was this whole, you know, kind of, again, layering onto the space. And so now we have this sort of pressure cooker where we have a space that is burgeoning, meaning now business is getting involved. Now we have real investors coming in with real money. We have big philanthropies. We have tiny little ones. We have just all these actors running around not to mention this emergence of the sort of techies and millennials who are coming in with a whole different way of solving and in some ways trying to disrupt and displace a lot of the current kind of approaches. You know, I'm just, you know, in business, we always look at the externalities whenever we're coming up with strategies. It's like what's pressing on our market, what's pressing, you know, but are we doing that in the social sector, looking at what's pressing here? Because it's, you know, here we need the social we need these innovators. We need to be able to advance on social outcomes. And yet we have this space that's packed and people are starting to run into each other. You know, you have like the social investors coming in with very different attitudes and they're starting to clash against some of the long term actors who have been on the ground and understand the complexity. Yeah. On the show that we've had here, you know, uh, we had Zvika Krieger on a few weeks ago and he's, uh, he is or was the, the State Department's representative in Silicon Valley. And he's the first person the State Department sent to Silicon Valley to talk to them about, hey, maybe you know, there's these, these big problems. Maybe you guys want to want to rock up and see how you can help. And we've had other people on the show, impact investors, you know, uh, Kevin Starr over at Malago talking about, you know, how do we make this long term, actual lasting, you know, like sustainable change. So there's I'm just sort of reiterating that there are these very different paradigms that are, as you said, it kind of piles on over the years, right, over the last century of how do we create a, a world that is, is, is a place that humans not only can live but, but flourish and, and find a better life for themselves. But we never replaced one with another one. There are these competing interests, not only being massively disrupted by the, you know, the, the two kids in a garage who said, hey, you know, we're going to throw together a some technology technological solution like like again like an airbnb or a, an uber that literally can disrupt world markets right um even in our space you know if you look at these new innovations coming in like zipline you know they're coming exactly. in with whole new ways of doing things and there are all these nonprofits who are going to be disrupted by that so, right I mean, yeah, we're we had, yeah we had zipline on yeah we had zipline on the show a little while ago too and but and i was where i was going that as well is that one thing that you didn't mention is at least for my lifetime, you know, over the last mm-hmm. several decades, the nefariousness 
Disruptors are not necessarily only social in, in terms of social good. Yeah. There are disruptors out there who want to hurt you. There's global threats. Yeah. There are these things where we have these moments where a very small group of people can do some pretty bad things. And that is another dynamic yeah. that has really come to the fore. And, and we see that now in the rise of populism. We see that in the rise of nationalism in this, yeah. this gut response to, you know, how do we protect ourselves rather than how do we engage? Setting the stage there, why is now the time for social? Let me put that on your table. Why is, you said it's the fastest growing market. It's people are jumping in. Everybody wants to be a part of it. Why is now the right time? Like what, how is that whole thing coming together to say, yes, this is, we've, we finally arrived. It's, you know, we're at a breakout moment. I'll sort of describe that in two ways. One, why I'm scared and what the other, why I would be, why I'm excited. Let's start from a place <laughs> of fear and then let's start, let's and, start and then we'll talk fear. about the place of joy, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, I'm afraid for all the reasons that any of us in this arena are afraid. And that's just this convergence of pressure on kind of humanity and the planet, you know, between climate, which is pushing on our food and water systems and creating these shocks, you know, migrations and culture clashes and just this amount of inequality, social inequality, which is clearly part of what's driving this rise of populism and this social disruption, you know, and I think that should be a signal to us, inequality and poor social outcomes. I mean, this is our space, our business, right? You know, and I think the other thing that's scary is that the reaction to these sort of pressures is to turn backwards to entrench even more on an economic growth trajectory. I mean, this is, you know, the administration here in the U.S., that is the entire focus and one of the things I love about SPI as a framework and as a measurement system is, is that in that in the index that they've created, they they strip away all of the economic um, variables. So you're able to see very clearly where a country is doing, how they're doing economically and how they're doing socially. And when you look at the U.S., we released the first social progress index a few years ago. Michael Porter put this out and he was interviewed by Fareed Zakaria. And it was kind of a shock to see how well we're doing economically, and yet red marks everywhere on our social outcomes. And so it, when you're able to disaggregate that and to really see where a society is fragile, or you look at Tunisia, another economic superstar with low SPI scores, so you see that if you're not delivering on social outcomes and you're only delivering on economic outcomes, you're kind of a, on a house of cards. You I know, that feel this like is we're where watching population. that play out in the, in, the, in the election that just happened in the U.S. in Brexit, in you know, what might happen in France here in, in, in a couple months. Uh, you know, who knows what the outcome will be in, in Europe. But we just had record, you know, what, we're in now, what, the week four of record stock returns, record profitabilities, yeah. these kinds of things. And yet what was the message of the, of the election in the United States was we're in pain. You know, right. we, we are a people in pain. At, at what point... This is now, I'm just on a soapbox right now, I apologize. But at what point do we wake up and say, look, we got to square this circle. There's clearly a disconnect here. The terrible part for me is that we know the answer. I feel like we have noble answer to this. I couldn't agree more. And yet, this is where the paradigm shift is. The paradigm of economic growth, that fetish for economic growth, that that's what's going to solve our problems, is so entrenched. And that's why you're watching this administration double down on the very thing that's getting us into a fragile state in the first place. I mean, that just doesn't even make sense if you think about it. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is a time, you know, where, where our space should be having 
a very strong voice and should be coalescing and mobilizing power because we actually do stand for social progress. We stand for those bribed and uh, defined within SPI, you know, because SPI asks very different questions than GP. And I should probably describe. I was going to say, like, why don't we pause? And I mean, we haven't had any a representative sure. on the, the show before, which is the social progress imperative. There's and the imperative itself produces and, and publishes something called the Social Project Index. Why don't you just give us the two minutes on what is that? Why is it important? And we can also give a resource to maybe some of Michael Green's TED Talks or something that also does that a good job of that. SPI is the complement to GDP. It basically says that if you want strong societies, you have to care as much about social progress as you care about economic progress. You have to have countries, leaders, communities prioritizing social outcomes as much and on par with economic outcomes, because otherwise you're going to have society, you're going to have things like social unrest. And um, so the social progress imperative was developed to bring that mission forward. It really has consists of three interrelated strategies. And one is the framework itself. It actually sets out to define what social progress means. And it asks several questions. One is, does a country provide for its citizens most essential needs? Does everyone have nutrition? Does everyone have water? Does everyone have shelter, personal safety? And then it asks another question, are the building blocks in place for individuals and communities to enhance and sustain well-being? Does everyone have access to basic knowledge, to information and communications? Do they have health care? Is their environment um, sustainable? And the final question is, is there opportunity for all individuals to reach their full potential? Do they have rights? Do they have access to higher education? Do they have access to, are they free? Do they have choices? Do they have equity and inclusion in their societies? And so this way of looking at human flourishing, which says not only do we have to flourish economically, we have to put these kinds of questions and these kinds of measures, um, and we have to manage these kinds of outcomes if we want sustainable societies. It's a really kind of a robust framework. So that's one is it just can, and it's something that everyone can align around, whether you're at the global level, at the national level, at the community level, um, at a single town level, these same questions matter for everyone. And then the other strategy is to provide these tools. And one is, can I measure these things? And that's why the Social Progress Index was developed. It measures across all of these dimensions, across 133 countries. It also provides scorecards so you can see where a country is doing along these or community is doing along these measures. And then finally, it's it has another strategy is networks, which is real people on the ground, communities who are adopting this and rallying around it and pushing for better outcomes along those lines. You know, when you think about it, I even look at the Skoll Foundation. You know, Jeff Skoll's highest vision is a world of peace and prosperity. But if you don't define what you mean by that, it's really hard to align a lot of people around it. Or you think about Darren right now at the Ford Foundation, he's really pushing an agenda around equality. If you're not willing to say specifically what that means, um, in a framework like, or social entrepreneurship, if the foundation is, is rallying around social entrepreneurship, still you have to define the kinds of things that they're tending to. Mm. And part of the challenge in our space is that everyone's kind of running their own show and we're not organized under a common framework, which is why we get lost in space. So 
That's SPI. Thank you for that explanation. I really appreciate it. We were it actually kind of give me a, a nice segue back into why is now the time for social? Because that's that's what we were talking about before. Yes. Tell me about those disparities. So how do we get the Ford Foundation to align with USAID, to align with DFID, to align with whoever else, you know, the small startup strategy about, all right, this is what we mean by equality. This is what we mean by environmental standards or whatever. I mean, is this what the United Nations has been trying to do forever with human rights, with rights for the child, this and that? Or, or is, there, is there something else that, that you see in the future? I mean, now you're talking in some way about the, the status quo within our space, which is that we have a lot of different institutions and brands speaking different languages, defining things differently, supporting different organizations, trying to share information, but it, it, that gets to the fragmentation in the space. And that's very entrenched. You know, what would get them to collaborate? Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the one of the things that uh, came out at the forum last year, a quote from someone, which is that they basically described it as we have a social change industry that is has a poor business model. It's fractured in the sense that even the entities that should be collaborating and working together to achieve impact, it's not happening. And I think that it's really the structures and the mechanisms aren't there. You know, I talked about the things that scare me, but the things, the reason why it's this era, I think, for a real step change in the social arena and how it, one, galvanizes its own power and two, brings the other sectors on board is just that the urgency of the challenges are recognized. And something else, which is that we have these historic international agreements, which we've never had ever, you know, the global goals. Um, the Paris Agreement, I mean, that seems there's those things are both we were celebrating those last year. And now we're nervous because all the attention is on, you know, these the sort of new world order <laughs> that we fear mm -hmm. is being shaped by these populist kinds of uprisings. I'm also excited as the social arena is so populated with real money and real actors. Um, so I think that, that we want change. We're actually struggling, I think, for very mundane reasons, <laughs> which is the ability to order. If I can riff off what you're saying there, too, is this something I've, I've talked about? I talked about in my TED Talk and whatnot as well, but it's like this is a time of unprecedented wealth as well, right? Private philanthropy has literally trillions of dollars just in the U.S., a lot of it's hard to find. Some yes. of it's very, some of it's extraordinarily earmarked or very focused on, you know, sort of local issues and this kinds of things. But literally trillions of dollars. There is new wealth being created at an unprecedented rate. There is an interconnectedness that is happening, you know, uh, again, at a scale and a speed that nobody can keep up with. It's breathtaking. And yet we keep finding ourselves bumping up against these problems, right? These knowable, solvable problems. Here's a real mundane question, but something I think that is important to ask just for, for the sake of asking it. How is this just not a redistribution? You know, if I'm thinking out of it from like a classic MBA, Wall Street, Chicago school perspective, how is this not going to the people who are who have wealth power in this and saying, hey, look, we need to spread this out and we need to redistribute it and change that mindset to the, hey, this is a game where we're all playing in the same sandbox and everybody benefits from it. And do, you, do you have a, a perspective on that? Are you talking about the redistribution of wealth or you're talking about just the, moving some of that wealth into? Not only moving some of the wealth into, into there, but we're talking about changing the status quo where it's like, hey, you know what? It's great that, that Walmart just, you know, it just made it a couple more pennies on the stock and, and this and that. But this is really, we're, we're asking fundamentally for this other structure, this private sector structure to rethink its premise as well at the end yeah. of the day. It has to, if this is going to work. 
So how is how do we how do we have that conversation? That really is a change the world conversation. And, and I think this gets to the shifting the status quo. If we shift the status quo for social, we shift it for the world in a certain way. And so one of the things that has to happen is that social progress as defined within a framework that we can all agree upon, whether it's the SPI framework or another one, I actually think that's a really strong framework, but that measure, we have to be able to measure and manage social as much as economic. So one thing that has to happen is social progress has to be on par, a global priority alongside economic progress. That alone is a, so, is a shift because once that is prioritized, all of a sudden this fragmented social marketplace that is on the side still is in demand, meaning then there's a demand for all the kinds of things that we do in this space. There's a demand for social innovators with solutions because you value it. You've prioritized it. You've understood as a human society that we cannot only drive economic progress. We have to care as much about this or we're all in danger, you know, because right now it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a CEO of a, of a large corporation or if you're working in a small nonprofit in Berkeley, you're both nervous about your society right now, <laughs> you know, sure. because then it gets really mm -hmm. personal want sustainable societies where our families can be safe and where, you know, people can go to school and be educated and have health care. So it kind of it gets really basic. But until we put SPI on par with GDP, until you hear SPI mentioned in the news as often as you hear GDP, if you until investments are held up or distributed according to how well a country's SPI is, that's the paradigm shift that has to happen. And then I think the second piece is that we have to bring visibility and order and comprehension to this opaque social change industry. I mean, you think about it right now, if I'm a billionaire coming into the social arena, the billionaires who have decided to give all their money away, mm -hmm. I actually don't know how to do this efficiently or give it away. So maybe that is me, that the reason why, you know, the first thing that the Zuckerbergs did was they set up their own thing because, you know, there's... Yeah, there's literally millions of outlets for them. And so what do they do? They set up their own thing. Is I mean, could yeah. that be one of those reasons? Well, I think that it's that someone said, said a quote that I think got to the fundamental problem with philanthropy, which is that it does what it wants, not necessarily what needs to be done. It's a really easy way to look at it. If I'm a philanthropist with billions of dollars, so I, the first thing I should want to see is where the gaps are, you know, where the important needs are, not I don't want someone to ask me, well, what do you care about? You know, I would rather have someone ask me, well, what <laughs> needs to be done? What's urgent here? What's most important? So I think that is such a fundamental flip. And also, I don't know how to, if I'm a billionaire, I've oriented myself in business. I come into this arena and it's, it's all about the issues. Well, do I care about women and girls? Do I care about water? Do I care about climate? You know, I'm just kind of feeling around for my issue, my where to play, how to win, because there's no functional industry um, to tap into. I mean, you think about it, it's, uh, you know, some of the challenges is there's no comprehensible value chain. You know, in business, you know, if you're a distributor, if you're B2B, if you're B2C, if you're an investor, you kind of know which kind of actor you are and where you fit in that ecosystem. And in the social, that's all kind of mixed up. You have philanthropies who are, many of whom are 
going out to the field, development actors, academic institutions. It's not ordered so that you actually have a specified role. Is this something that school is working on? Or is there an academic you know, thread that we could follow where you know, someone is or a group of people are, are trying to create that order that we don't know about? This is kind of where I am because right now we just spent the past year kind of looking at it from a bird's eye view. I'm operating from this paradigm of SPI being on par with GDP. And I look at what drives business and I look at the institutions and the platforms that make it easy for business to order itself and to flourish in the world. I mean, you look at the platform like WEF, for example, however you feel about that, a lot of really important conversations and policies get hammered out there so that business can flourish pretty ubiquitously all over the world. The languages are normed there, things get ironed out, and I'm not sure where are we doing that in our space. You know, we have several platforms. We have we had Clinton Global Initiative. It wasn't happening there. It was still at sort of the project level. Mm-hmm. We have the Skull World Forum. I actually think that's probably one of the places where it's most likely to happen. But if, unless we come to an understanding that the space itself needs significant reforms, that the dynamics within the space are at odds with progress, and that the leaders within the space are willing to take that on, align themselves around that, I don't think we're going to get there. How much of the problem is the leaders in the space don't know this is a problem? Because I'm just thinking, you know, if I'm the head of the, the top five development agencies, you know, are you having these conversations with them at the same time you're having the same conversation with the, you know, the head of the, let's just say the top 10, you know, foundations and the top 10 philanthropists. And you're saying, look, you all are, are looking at essentially the same types of goals but you're not talking to one another and we need to normalize this language. Is that something that you or school or, or SPI or whomever is facilitating? I'm just laughing because it's funny. <laughs> I love that you're laughing at my question. That's fantastic. I'm laughing because honestly, until you lay it out, you know, and obviously we can't, we're not looking at a PowerPoint. This is a, a podcast, but until you lay it out and start to look at the space from a bird's eye view and start to see the flaws in logic, even though once you see it, you can't unsee it. So do I think this has been socialized and and started to gain traction? No. I mean, you're looking at it, you know, right now, and it's sort of raw form. It's an essential conversation, because if you think about the forces that are now pushing to kind of drive the the current paradigm around economic progress and growth, 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 which is going to just create more challenge and, and, you know, sideline some of these pressures that are essential for, you know, human flourishing. It's not a pretty picture. You know, it's Sally Osberg actually said a quote, I think it was her. She said, humanity is at some kind of tipping point. Either we connect the forces for good or risk devolving into real chaos and connect the forces for good. I mean, this is why it's an exciting time. What does it mean to connect the forces for good in a burgeoning well, arena? So, so let me, let me, this is, this will be an interesting thread for us to talk about for a second here. So connecting this, the, the forces for good. The reason why I've used the term human flourishing, and again, I'm not responsible for that. I got that from a guy named Sam Harris. Uh, <laughs> anybody can, right? I, I just, I love that description because it has no value proposition to it, right? Human flourishing is, is a, a definition of, you know, we are sustainable, we are continuing to move forward, you know, we are able to sustain our society and grow and whatnot. What we're seeing right now, especially the picture that we've painted over here the last 45 minutes or so, is that 
you know, we're, we're on the edge. We're on the cliff. It's exactly what Sally was saying, right? We're at a tipping point right here. And so I'm wondering to you, yeah. my question is, is it important for us as we have this massive call to action that's coming out of this podcast, essentially, to organize the sector, to, to bring, you know, to, to align the leadership, to, to create sector and to create, you know, uh, a, a common nomenclature throughout it. How important is it to remove the good, that sort of value proposition of, hey, let's go do good in the world. And actually, hey, let's get to a point where we are able to continue to survive. And is this just the sustainability movement that I'm talking about in, in a different form? Or does this make sense to you? I love what you're saying. Because part of what's social on the sidelines is this idea that it's this do-good space. And, it, and it's kind of small and it's, you know, it's... Uh, well, so it's yeah, what you're I doing your charity has- on, your, on Sunday afternoon. And more importantly, it's, you know, what, what the Koch brothers think is good is extraordinarily yeah. different than what Bill Gates thinks is good. And I'm just thinking, yeah. you know, to, of the billionaire sector, right? And then when you bring, you know, when you boil it down to, again, let me just pile on all these things of this last election in the United States, the person, you know, your typical citizen of, of Kansas, what they consider, I'm going to go out and do good in the world is radically different than somebody from the Bronx. Can we move beyond that? Or can we come to a common definition? Or can we find a different way to talk about it to say, the actions that we're taking in our professional, in our lives, in, in our professional lives, and in, in, our, in our commercial lives, need to move us towards that place where we see a sustainable future. And we see a future where it's not just sustainable, but gosh, it's, it's actually happy. Who doesn't want to be happy, right? <laughs> I like, again, let me, let me soapbox for just five seconds. Maybe I'll edit this out. Who knows? But people ask me, it's like, you know, all the time about how do you know these environmental problems, you know, how do we got to get the, you know, the Paris Agreement, this and that. I'm like, look, if it were up to me and it's not, why isn't somebody approaching this, this particular conversation with, with a simple conversation like this? Have you ever gone, Paula, to a city and the first thing that you do is you say, hey, you know what I want to do? I really, I would love to put my lips up against the tailpipe of a car and just breathe as, as heavily as I can. And the answer is no. <laughs> Nobody likes it, right? There is no one in the world who is interested in having respiratory problems and not being able to breathe and, and see a city line. Like, let's get rid of smog. Let's get rid of that, that, that pollution because it sucks. There's no, nobody, we can all agree on that. Now, there may be some people way back in the day that, you know, that's the smell of progress, but those days are over. So why aren't we framing these questions around stuff that we can really get behind, no matter where you come from? Because then you're, then you're actually having the conversation with the Airbnbs of the world or the Ubers of the world saying, look, solve this problem. And there's probably a huge profit behind you if you can figure out how to solve it. Maybe I'm just preaching. Sorry, let me get off the soapbox now. (laughs) I like what you're saying, because in a way, you're trying to normalize this instead of having it be special and on the side and do good. You're, it's, you're, you're using logic to frame it <laughs> versus um, passion, you know, and I think this is, you know, the same way that we talked about and, and maybe and again, we're just in conversation here. I haven't thought any of this through, but the same way that Walmart has to come to the table now for their the sustainability of their business. This is the, you know, same reason everyone needs to care about these things because it's the the stability of all of our societies and our own neighborhoods, (laughs) you know, and our own neighbors. It's very complex because you think about the roles of the sectors and all of this. You know, I think we're sitting on top of a sector as disordered as it is. There's a tremendous amount of really strong leadership and voices that people don't normally hear. 
I mean, honestly, you know, when I listen to Darren speak, when I listen to Paul Pullman, when I listen to um, Sally Osberg, you know, you just want to, you just believe the world is going to be a better place, you know, because they do represent a different brand of leadership. And so I think the coalescence of leadership and power in this space that can start to drive a counter narrative to economic growth and fear and all of these things is, is essential. And so, and that's a hopeful thing. You know, when people come to the Skull World Forum, have you, I don't know if you've been to the Skull World Forum, but you know, you leave the forum feeling like anything's possible, you know, because it's a different voice. It's a different kind of leadership. And the fact that that leadership, you know, shows up here and there and you, you're not seeing them on CNN, <laughs> you know, I think that's part of the problem. And when I look at, you can't shift a paradigm without thinking about the power equation. And if social progress matters and these leaders aren't starting to come together and form a power base in the world and starting to insist on practices that um, drive efficiencies and kind of real progress in the space, then, and, and I actually think that's what, it's, it's really a lack of leadership. You think about the World Economic Forum and how it supports business. You know, someone started that. And that's where now all the most important leaders in the world functioning in the private sector are there. I can't get out of my head, as you're just describing you know, the, the last little piece there, I can't get out of my head yeah. the word Rockefeller. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering what, you know, if let's just, let's just take the world forum as, as a example, because there's the, there's, there's a number of these kinds of accelerators, incubators, you know, yeah. events that, that bring these people together, they get award, you know, and, and there's, there's an investment shift, a paradigm to it. Or, or maybe this is an opportunity. I'm sure we're not the first person people to identify her, but what about consolidating industry? Cause I'm thinking, here's what Rockefeller did. He started buying oil companies, right? And he kept buying them and he kept buying until he was the producer of oil and he basically wrote the book and he, that's, that's how he normalized the industry, right? At the end of the day. And then of course, yeah. antitrust broke him apart and, but the language was built, the, the industry was built. And so even after it got broken apart, it still functioned the same way. It still functions today, essentially the same way it did 150 years ago, right? And could this be a call for a massive consolidation? Like someone needs to go on, you know, some billionaire needs to just go on a big old buying spree? sounds weird but okay nonprofit businesses are nonprofit businesses right and and social enterprises are either some hybrid or for-profit or number you could conceivably put this together you could you could start building a massive portfolio that has real clout that has real market mover kinds of you know walmart size to it is that am i just crazy yeah. and i'm just wondering like something like the skull world form it just seems like you have this or i'm thinking of like the y combinator or these places where you you have this energy you already have the cachet, you have the brand, and to say, look, rather than giving you an award and then saying, we're going to help you and and sort of provide you coaching and other pieces, and you go about your merry way and do your thing, we're going to invest in you, and you're going to become a department in this company. Am I, it, you tell me if I'm crazy. Oh, that's interesting. One, I think you're crazy, and I think it's, it's a good crazy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of think about it, you're being presented with the challenge and it's pushing you into a solution mode for the space itself. Mm -hmm. And that's what exactly needs to happen. You know, do I know that that's the answer? I mean, one of the things that I really appreciate about Skoll is that not only do they invest in a portfolio of innovations, and these are, you know, sort of systems changers at themselves at the level of the issue, but they are also pushing for the enabling environment. They're also trying to consolidate really important actors and ideas within the space itself. 
Do I know what the answer is? It's what questions we're asking. Mm-hmm. You know, are we asking the right questions on these platforms? And where is the sort of center of gravity and base of power for this sector? Because right now, is that the Skullworld Forum? It's not that right now. Now there's a vacuum with the Clinton Global Initiative. But where is that center of gravity that coalesces power, that pushes for social progress to be on par with economic progress, that challenges the actors in the space within their own institutions to behave in ways that bring visibility and order and comprehension to the space, to the industry itself, and that are willing to advocate for what works which is tough because there are a lot of things in the social arena and a lot of things that aren't working and that just keep existing because of the status quo. And I think more importantly, starting to challenge what doesn't work and be willing to stand for that. And and that includes challenging things outside of the sector that are creating problems faster than we can solve them. That's why unless it's a power base, you've got leaders out there on a limb on their own. So I don't know. How do we get them to come together and how do we coalesce power and how do we bring leadership to a sector that is sort of dying to be born here? (laughs) No. So let's take that in a moment to wrap up our conversation here. And and my question for you that I'd love to leave with is the classic. We just had a meeting. What's the tangible next step that you would take? If if I'm a social entrepreneur listening right now, if I'm an NGO worker or a leader right now, or if, if I'm a billionaire right now, who knows? Maybe that maybe our humble listenership includes one billionaire. I doubt it. What would you say, look, take this next step tomorrow to move us on this path? I would focus in the immediate term on the US. And the reason I say that is because we have one of the most mature, flourishing social arenas on the face of the earth. You know, we have all the big philanthropies here. We have all the big social investors here. We have a very mature civil society here. And here we are as a country faced with these threats, you know, populism, forced social outcomes, economic, you know, in retrench on economic. If the leaders in this country could organize around a framework, around a narrative, a counter narrative, and start to combine forces at the leadership level, I think that would be a really powerful model that then could be globalized. Um, but why not start, scope it here because there, there's proximity there's maturity, there's an imperative, let's just say, there could be some real excitement around that. So how about if we do that? Paula, this has been one of the most fantastic conversations we've had on this show. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on it. I know you're a really busy person, but thank you so, so much. And uh, I hope we get to talk again sometime. Thank you. My pleasure. Hey guys, you've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast. This is episode 149. If you're finding value in this conversation and the other conversations that you hear at apreneur.com, please take a moment and consider to support us. And you can do it in any number of ways. You know, give us a review over on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Send this episode to your friends and your network on Twitter or on Facebook, or just give us a comment on our blog or on Facebook because we answer every single one. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Thank you.